if someone's life is busy or chaotic and you sit down for that kind of meditation which is sitting and still mm-hmm. it just doesn't quite match up because you drive yourself crazy with all the thinking because that's what your habit is that's been built through your activities or circumstances conditions of life and so a more appropriate thing in a, a gradual training or a gradual practice is more movement so then you know, a certain quality of steadying movement can start to tune down the frequency, calm the body and the mind and shift the chemicals that are, and hormones that are causing so much interactivity. This is I Have My Reasons, a podcast highlighting stories of human resourcefulness, resiliency, and growth. I'm your host, Deandra Day. Today on I Have My Reasons, I'm sitting down with Gord Oakes. He's a musician, an acupressure therapist. He's been exploring, studying, and applying Qigong, yoga, and meditation in his life since the early 90s. He's lived in a a monastic lifestyle uh, for many years, and... uh, This conversation just feels so rich. We talk about many things, but some of the things are, you know, this discontentment and clinging that can show up in our lives, Uh, meditation practice, creativity, what it means to have a a true presence in your life, uh, and so much more. I hope you enjoy. I'm so glad you're here, Gord. Well, thanks, Deandra. Yes, really, I really appreciate the invitation. It's a real honor to have this uh i think this is my first podcast actually is it yeah great and just you know looking forward to the process of reflection as well from mm. just hearing what comes out of my mouth and from the questions and yeah i think i'll deepen through it through the process oh that's beautiful gord yeah. um i when i so i just want to share how we met which was only two weeks ago maybe or a week ago Two weeks. Two or weeks ago, yeah. So, we yeah. were at a music show here, um, close by in a town called Erickson, and just at the end of the show, um, we had met, and I think I had just started talking to you, and when you had shared that you have lived a monastic lifestyle the last couple of years, and you shared your interest and study of Buddhism, and I that was just like I knew that was just the scratch of the surface. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> I need to talk to Gord. And so after we started communicating, I also saw on your email signature that you're also a musician. Mm-hmm. And so I'm really, really excited to have you here and, and just to learn about you and, you know, your how you've kind of walked this path that you're on and what got you here. Um, and I also want to share that most recently in my personal process, I've been sitting with this idea of what it means to be an artist, musician, and then this other part around like community healing, self-healing, and how these things like cross or if they cross or, and I think they do is what I'm coming to. But I, you know, as I was learning more about you just through, you know, doing some research, I'm like, oh, he's also walking a, a similar path in that way. Mm-hmm. So yeah, such a pleasure to have you yeah, here. <laughs> thank you. It was interesting, just as you were saying that, this image came into my imagination of water. 
surface of water and then a kind of container of water. And then something is dropped into the water and concentric circles of waves and movement go out. And when there's a certain edge to the container or a boundary, they, they bounce back into the center. Mm. So that was just an interesting visual that, that came when you were talking about um, community and personal intentions or practice and cultivation and how that, you know, maybe the container of a community, if there is one, feeds back to that center and that center ripple feeds mm. out. And it kind of, just a really interesting image that came to me. And as I just want to share, there's, um, I think about karma when you say that too, you know, this idea. And I know that that's a big concept, but I had a teacher once, Michael Stone. I don't know if you've heard of Michael Stone. No. And he taught us about karma in this way of like a ripple mm. that like when, you know, something happens, there's a ripple and that mm. impact is, you know, what we could call karma. Right. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. And that the word, as far as I've heard it, really means action. Mm. So the, our own actions, yeah, have, create a ripple. Yeah. That then we bounce back in certain ways and <laughs> come back to us. Mm. Yeah. So, Gord, thank you for that. I, tell me, you know, I'm curious. So what brought you on the path of, yeah, where you're at? Like, when did you start to have such, a, like, obviously a, a depth of inquiry into, um, you know, self and self-study and mm-hmm. Buddhism? And, you know, it's not an easy path to live a monastic lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious maybe when that sparked for you or when that started. Yeah, well, as I, you know, have looked back and contemplated the current of unfolding, I, you know, I think to my, what my parents told me about what I was like when I was a baby. Mm. And they said, yeah, you, you know, you were just very quiet kind of content and you know receptive to when the food came and so that's been curious to me just to hear that story and um, you know when my memories first started appearing maybe four or five years old I just remember always being outside in the yard or wandering off in the 70s, wandering Mm. around the neighborhood freely. That was the culture of the time. (laughs) (laughs) And finding trees and finding the forest. And I just was always attracted to that and and sitting quietly in the forest and watching and listening. And there was something, you know, even in those young years through my youth, I noticed that the quality that showed up when I was sitting still and quietly and sort of opening all the senses, but also opening the imagination in a different way than producing thoughts, mm. like in, inner talk, let's say. Yeah. 
inner verbalizing was just this quiet thing was showing up quite young where there's sort of a silence that would show up sitting there an inward silence and that's just always really stayed with me that um, there's pleasure in that as well as kind of nurture from nature yeah. nurturing from nature and earth um would you call it like a solitude, like a comfort with solitude? Yeah, and I find that in solitude now that that quality shows up. You know, if maybe it might take longer sometime depending on how busy I've been. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a, it's almost like gravity. There's a, a sort of gravity and everything kind of anchors into a, a stillness and a quietude mm. where at the same time everything opens up and this a sense of deep connection can just be there almost like that's what the natural thing is when the thoughts aren't so persistent yes and so this is something that you've experienced from a young age mm -hmm. yeah yeah would you say that your parents helped cultivate that, or was that something that you just, you know, found and drew your or like went to on your own? In, I think in some ways it, it was just, you know, speaking of karma, I think it was just something that was with me. Yeah. And my parents were really about community, and engagement in all kinds of service and. Um, social connection but at the same time that the the setting or like the the home setting had a lot of spaciousness to it mm. and plus their choice of having a house that was by a forest a river valley forest so it was one block away so I could just go there any day or every day and it's a significant you know Edmonton it's a city, but the river valley is quite significant in the forest. It has lots to explore. How, what a gift. Yeah. Yeah. As a young person to have that access to nature and also the spaciousness. I, I often think about, you know, the busyness of, of our society or our culture right now and the impact that that has on children. Mm -hmm. Um in just that there, you know, there, it, the space to be bored or the space for quietude can be taken up so easily. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, when I think back to my childhood as well, and some of like the, my fondest memories as a child were playing in the treed area by my house, you know, games of make, make believe with my best friend and, um, that space that I had in my life to do that every weekend, almost yeah. every night after school, Yeah, you know? And at one point I used to think, oh, it's because we didn't have very much money and I couldn't do extracurricular activities, which was true, but it's actually now one of my biggest gifts that we couldn't fill my schedule with dance and this and sports and, you know, that, yeah. 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 And there's something important about unmonitored play. Oh, yeah. I think there's talk and research about it now 
but for whatever reason, I had the benefit of that a lot as well, and just found my way, you know, found my relationship that was not mediated by the parental direction. Mm -hmm. And it was at other times, but there was a lot of space for just unmonitored free play, and especially also unmediated by technology. Yeah. Just like sitting on the ground, and there's just forest and trees and birds and squirrels. And And so that connection to nature has been a big um, resource and also sounds like a big anchor in your studies of Buddhism as well, based on the kind of school of Buddhism that you found yourself in. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's, um, that's really a strong reason why I was choosing the you know, it's the Thai forest tradition is what I've explored most. The forest tradition of Buddhism. And uh, because there's a, an emphasis on that, um, well, this solitude of being with nature. And many, many of the talks that are documented from the Buddha talk about finding the wilderness and the you know, lonely places is the um, translation. I don't know if that's really what it is. Mm. You know, lonely. There's a certain connotation to lonely uh, these days, but you know, when I hear that, it's more about the solitude, and it's you know, it's not about a lonely feeling. It's really about a connected and deeply unified feeling with um, just the process of life, which is slower. Yeah. In not the natural world. I mean, that's my f- experience of it too. Like the trees stand and they stay there. And it's not like spinning thoughts, you know, very <laughs> different. Um, yeah. Yeah. So the forest is also like being in the country. Usually the monasteries are not in cities. Mm. So it's a very different context and energetic to yeah. it. Yeah, I can imagine that. And lots of time offered to to find connection with and, and basically let nature be one of your teachers. Oh, that's beautiful. And so in your monastic, um, I guess, lifestyle or how long have you, you said the last couple of years that's you've been kind of yeah. moving to different monasteries? Yeah, yeah. it's really... It's been a seven-year process, approximately. Wow. And, you know, almost a decade warming up to that more direct process. Um, yeah, so I, I made an application to Birkin Forest Monastery in 2015 to stay and, and take up the training. And uh, for, you know, various reasons, I wasn't able to stay in certain monasteries for longer periods. Mm. Which, you know, which created a sort of travel and pilgrimage experience. And, and different teachers then as well. Yeah, many different teachers. So it became a kind of, um, you know, wide, wide experience of different styles and traditions. And, you know, most of it was still fi- finding my way to the Thai forest monasteries in the Western tradition. So Western monks of the... Thai forest tradition, mm. um, but also 
dipping into the Vietnamese Zen tradition with Thich Nhat Hanh's communities and and being in Sri Lanka, so Sri Lankan forest traditions and also uh, town monasteries in Sri Lanka. I went to two of those. Wow. So That's got to see cool. a real traditional uh, expression of Buddhism. Like it's, it's very ancient in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. and, and very fresh in the Western countries. So, yeah, it became, it's kind of like a resource now. I got to see a lot yeah. and various monks that I had met along the way hadn't seen much. You know, you mm-hmm. start your training and you kind of stay there in that, with that particular teacher for five, seven or ten years. That's standard to stay somewhere yeah. for that long. Mm-hmm. So when you had initially kind of chosen to to pursue training more seriously, that was what was in your mind. Like you would find somewhere you would stay there for several years, mm-hmm. or that was kind of the expectation mm-hmm. in a sense. Yeah. And so then when you, you know, just based on what happened in your life or the circumstances when you were kind of moving from place to place, was it premeditated or was it just kind of like? okay, I guess this is like that would arrive to you when you were at the monastery. You're like, okay, I'm going there next. That's exactly it. Cool. And basically it was because, you know, I would kind of, I would apply to a certain monastery and talk to the abbot or the senior monk. And they would say, oh, well, you know, we don't have space here or, you know, we've stopped taking people in for the new people for the training. Go there, try there. And I said, I would just, it was kind of the surrender to the process, like, okay, I'll go there then. So find my way there, and they would say, oh, well, this and that, you know, you can't stay, or the visa, there's no visa for that, for this training for you. If you're out of the country, go to that monastery. And <laughs> I was following the trail <laughs> that they were suggesting. And, um, yeah, just surrendered to it out of a certain kind of commitment, like, well, this is this is what's up. You know, life has taken me here and I'm just trusting this and you know that's that's been a that was a, a clear choice quite a while ago like and I used to verbalize it as some um, guidance from spirit you know mm-hmm. I would say oh, spirit I just give myself to spirit and take me and show me kind of thing so in some ways it was like that again just following the thread and um seeing what would happen and you know it was it's funny what life just presents these things often that may be a bit not what's expected or sometimes opposite and yes. my real desire was okay I just want to go somewhere and stay yeah. at Birkin that place mm-hmm. and having taken a number of years to choose and be very clear with that oh I want to go there I want to be with that teacher and that's it I'll just stay there and then I was like, no, <laughs> go here, go there. It's very different go then. all around the world. <laughs> that longing for, I mean, yeah, that longing for kind of the stability of one teacher, one place. Mm-hmm. And that trusting the process. I mean, it's, th- those words are used a lot now, I would say more, which is good. But like trusting the process of life or trusting spirit or however you, you know, want to, Oh, I guess maybe those are two separate things, but um, it's that's hard work, you know. Mm-hmm. Like that—that's not 
that trust isn't something that um, is always like exhilarating and mm. desirable, you know. Mm. And so there's the there's the difficulty in that sometimes, and yeah, yeah. or the stretching, and maybe is a better way to say it, like the mm. stretching of your the stretching of your trust can be very uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate that word stretching. Yeah. It really feels like it describes it well. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, patience is also cultivated through that. And, and you know, a few of the monks really expressed this well, you know, in talking about the monastic rules in the Vinaya. You know, what, you know, the question is like, well, what's the, what's a real key thing that is helping you in, in the, or benefit, a benefit from this monastic training and these kind of structures of precepts and rules? And a number of them said, well, just the fact that you don't get to choose. Mm. You, you don't get to do what you want. As, you know, like, sort of number one or top three of what's been benefiting them. Interesting. And that was an interesting response and, and learning and awareness. And uh, just that there's, uh, you know, when, you know, I, I think when you don't have that power of doing what you want, something can let go. There's a kind of letting go of demand demanding that it be this way or that mm. way and that's a, there's a lot of energy within that that just can drop away yes and you know i think that in my process of monastery pilgrimage and search just had that built in you know and it that wasn't it, that just kind of showed up as well mhm like that having to let go of that control? Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, that became more or less an insight rather than like, oh, I, I don't feel like I have control. It's like, well, I really am not in control of this. So here we are. This is what it is. Right. And so then when you say that, I mean, what comes up is that so much pain or discomfort comes in the resistance. Mm-hmm. The resistance to change, the resistance to, you know, how life is showing up in that moment or what life is asking of you you know it's like Mm -hmm. when you had said um you know with the precepts and the rules and and how that having that structure there's a letting go that happens Mm -hmm. because there's no choice yeah right yeah and so when we resist something because we feel like you know it wasn't our choice i didn't choose that and there's an impatience with it so much of the pain comes in that, you know, and so if there's a practice of actually letting that resistance go, you know, and this is what we talk about letting go, then I just, I think about what frees up in those moments, you know, like what happens when we're like, okay, well, it's not a choice, you know, whatever it is that's showing up in our life. Yeah. Where there's more space for, for different things when we can, when we can, relax into that Mm -hmm. that knowing that we can't choose differently and yeah yeah and then i think the choice comes more inwardly Mm. there's not so much about external conditions 
Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that that inclines towards the you know, in, in the teaching of the Buddha, there's also this core, the core teaching of discontent. Sorry, I'm laughing because <laughs> these birds, I, like they're, they've never been here before, like, Gord. Hey, what's going on down yeah. there? What's this? What are these? Um, I've never seen these, these birds like, before. Not quite a seagull, but... No, um, there's some sort of water bird, though. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. No, that's fun. Sorry, I just had to acknowledge them because they're they're coming to say hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hi. 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 <laughs> oh, I have to figure out what those are. Anyways, um, sorry to interrupt, mm, Gord, but this okay. an inward choice that mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and the the teaching on um, discontent, mm. which you know dukkha in Pali language or suffering, which is kind of an imprecise translation but discontent is, is pretty broad yeah and so what's what's the cause of that you know there is discontent we all feel it and so what's causing it and one of the the basic descriptions of that is uh you know craving so this kind of string of things like craving reaching grasping clinging remain holding to mm. so this is kind of action that you know we can feel ourselves doing that either with thoughts or physically but clinging is a kind of key term or remain holding and this thing is whatever it is it's con- in constant change and shift but part of that clinging can be wanting it to stay the same or be the way we want it to be mm-hmm. or have the experience the way we want it want to experience it but just the nature of all things is this shiftiness and um, so when we when we are not aware of that process of this kind of very subtle craving or wanting leading to clinging and remaining holding onto it that's you know clearly it's suffering when we're trying to hold on to something mm-hmm. that's shifting and moving and if we want it to be a certain way it's it's got its own way it's not yeah. about us making it be a certain way although sometimes we can we can exert a kind of control you know or influence yeah but if we want to come out of that discontent just need to be aware of that process and be aware that we're doing that or the seeds leading toward that. Yes. And so I, I wonder, Gord, like, w- and maybe this is part of the, the practice of meditation, but, you know, when you think about working with that, that craving and that clinging, that holding on to, um, what are some of the things that you have found helpful with that? Hmm. Yeah, certainly turning into meditative practices um, and embodied meditative practices so like observing the body and observing the wider context of what it is Mm. what it's like to experience the body as a changing phenomenon Mm -hmm. which sometimes comes over years you know you feel this shift and that shift or this discomfort and it comes and it goes and 
or this, you know, toothache shows up and then it goes, or a bigger disease comes and goes, or sometimes stays for a long time. And yes. That um, mindfulness of the, the real experiences helps. And, you know, the description of mindfulness includes the present moment awareness yeah. and body-mind, full-body-mind awareness and also this um, kind of spacious, non-judgmental abiding, let's say, or, or attitude. Mm-hmm. So we can see the likes and dislikes coming and expressing or wanting to be expressed. And realizing that, you know, there's a self, maybe, I don't know, maybe you can um, share how you conceptualize this, but there's like a self that's outside of that, you know, that liking and this disliking and there's this craving and this clinging and, you know, this idea that your thoughts and your emotions, that they're separate from you. Or they're not, you know, like this is some of the, when I think about some of the work I do with my clients and, and a very like westernized mindfulness mm-hmm. kind of approach, like a mental health mindfulness approach, yeah. um, really, you know, trying to support them and in, in bringing themselves like, into the moment and, and f- seeing that, like observing, like creating that observing piece of like seeing those thoughts and seeing those emotions as something that are outside of you versus mm-hmm. you. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. The, the self is a, is a very interesting contemplation and, and there's so much in spiritual traditions of using that word and what is it and yes. who am I and um, something that I, you know, it's, it's been, let's say, blossoming. I think it, it's a process that can take a while to really look at that. And some of the, you know, wording of the teachings I've come across has been helpful with that in the sense of, okay, so there's something that it can observe, which is different from what is being observed. Mm-hmm. There's awareness. And... Um, there's, you know, conditioned, um, things are conditioned through experience and through thoughts about them. And so a self, the sense of self has been a helpful phrase for me. Okay. It's not saying, it's not a noun. Right. Self becomes less of a noun and more of a, mm, well, a sense about something that we we feel like we observe mm-hmm. we observe there's something there it gives a um like a less fixed f less fixed yeah. image like sense of self versus self yeah yeah and and i think moves towards um seeing that there's a process of you know selfing maybe is a mm. term that's been used it's it's um conditioned and built and fabricated and adjusted and grown and it's more solid or less solid, and um, and then you know, I guess well, I I appreciate the 
way of, you know, staying with the knowing is a phrase that I've come across in some guided meditations and from particularly one of the abbots in, in the Thai forest tradition. Um, stay with the knowing. So that's pointing to this awareness faculty, let's mm-hmm. say. That awareness is the thing that is kind of present that we can direct. And so there's still this choice and ability to, to move something. And so what, what is the knowing? Stay with the knowing. Could be simply a, simply the, when I breathe in, I know I'm breathing in. Mm-hmm. When I breathe out, I know I'm breathing out. So again, it's the process of mindfulness practice. Right. Staying with the knowing moment by moment. And then eventually you can see, you sort of reflect back. What, okay, so what is doing the observing? You know, usually you would call that me or self. And that's kind of the most stable piece, but it's not, it's not something we can exactly know what it is. But hearing the, the teachings about the process of a sense of self. It's a evolving, shifting bundle of awareness and that becomes more of a verb mm-hmm. than a noun. And I love this particular quote from Ajahn Chah is something like um, there are times when you use a self and there's times when you um, go to, to non-self and when you overcome both then you've really got it. You go beyond self, beyond non-self. And I thought that was really profound because there can be this duality. Yes. And one might often say, oh, Buddha teaches non-self. There's no self. And others teach, oh, there is a self. There's an eternal, unchanging self. And Ajahn Chah was saying, well, yeah, there's a conditioned self. Sure. We need to use that and take part in the conventions of embodied life. Mm-hmm. And then there's this place of being empty of self. But even going beyond the concept of either is, is really getting mm-hmm. closer to it. Right. So the third way, you know, the third way. And then is that just consciousness? You know, when you think about... Or is that even beyond consciousness? There's, there's kind of an unknowable. There's a bunch of unknowable things. No the, way. The Buddha, <laughs> the Buddha uses that phrase, unfathomable. Yes. And you won't necessarily find it. You know, like say, nirvana or nibbana, yeah. going, entering or whatever. The, the unconditioned emerges within you. It's being unconditioned, unmanifest unborn, these kind of descriptions. There's no one there to 
that's conditioned enough to say, oh, it's this or that. Uh-huh. Because it isn't, you know, the definition of it is it's not this or that. Right. These questions don't apply at that level. Yes, I, I yes. So is our consciousness abiding in this thing that's called the unconditioned? It's just not, yeah. it's not. It just doesn't work to ask the question like right. that. <laughs> I know it. That's helpful because it's it exists in a place that doesn't have, you know, it's it's beyond that. It's beyond this is this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the naming and the mm-hmm. is that what you're implying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So, Gorda, I I have to ask. You know, as I've dabbled um, very um, kind of lightly in and out of like Buddhism and, and meditation and mindfulness practice, I would say, is, is something that is the piece that I've really kind of taken that's really impacted my life. Mm-hmm. You know, this, mm-hmm. this learning of, of, of the awareness and the, and the knowing and the choice of, of where the awareness can go, you know, that, that skill set or that practice, um, but one of the places where I've gotten stuck with Buddhism, and it, this comes from a place of ignorance, and I say that in the gentlest way of that word, you know, but that Buddhism might just be like this middle path or this one way that that isn't very spiritual. Isn't very spiritual. Yes, right. Okay. So from this, I, that it's very much... And I don't know that this is true, but this is like a judgment, let's say, around Buddhism, that it doesn't really talk about um, spirit, though you mentioned spirit mm. in our conversation already today. And I think the piece that you just mentioned is opening my perspective right now, because that what you know you just shared there is is kind of touching on this or pushing back on this judgment that I have that that Buddhism is very much like this is what's here, this is now, and this is what matters. Mm. And, you know, there's maybe nothing else outside of that. Mm. You know what I'm, do you understand what I'm kind of implying here? That it's very much, um, there's, there's not a lot of language around, like, what is this experience that happens between, between us and between um, us and the unknown but when you talk about the forest tradition I think that it obviously is touching on that you know in your studies because like when we're in nature there's so obviously this communing that happens it's easy it feels easier to touch in with when we sit in nature yeah yeah so I'm starting to think now that maybe there is a space for this these um this thinking about that there's there might be something more outside of the here and now mm. or more happening in the here and now. Right. So does that make sense? I mean, I'm, I'm just kind of speaking, but yeah. um, I'm wondering if anything's coming up as I say or share that kind of judgment towards um, this, this practice and study. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what what comes to to mind in in that what you've said is um, the invitation of honoring 
the conditions, you know, at hand, of course, in the present moment, which is, it kind of includes everything that is happening in the present moment. But yeah, we do find ourselves having this power of thinking into the future and, and past, and um, which can cause a lot of stress and strain. Yes. But also, it does something, right? Like, um, but what's this uh, kind of phrase that preparation or luck favors the prepared person right. or pre prepared mind? So, yeah. So what more, your sort of question is, what, what more is there than the present moment, right. kind of in that direction? Yes. Thank you for <laughs> simplifying that for me, because as you're speaking, I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm having a process happening here right now, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it comes to this honoring of conditions and conventions. You know, maybe there's also this other split of... Um, um, transcendent and imminent or or conditional and again I think you know Ajahn Chah offers quite a bit about that you know like honoring conventions and being very grounded and conventions being conventions yeah that's an interesting term it means like ordinary stuff yeah. you know cultural forms let's say or okay. even you know just physical life physical things like what is conventional like in that sense like what we see as being conventional yeah, yeah. so it kind of conditioned and conventional you know maybe they're somewhat related words so the conditions are all of of matter, things that have taken on matter and form, okay, ha have a, some sequence of being conditioned toward the way they are. Like we could say, evolution is a series of conditions creating further conditions. This is the condition of this grass and dirt right now, okay. and it can be conditioned further. We can do things to it. Inputs. Mm -hmm. And that does something that lasts, right, on the physical level. And having, you know, I think the the middle, if we're trying to find a middle way and avoid extremes, okay, let's say focusing only on the transcendent qualities could be an extreme. Right. Focusing only on... Um, you know, the, the the term worldly is something that's used. Okay. But let's just say th things that are um, denser, mm -hmm. like transcendent being like non-dense and this other worldly things maybe being dense. We can touch a tree, we can touch each other or the ground. Yes. Only tuning in to that 
could be another extreme. So then, so then mm-hmm. what's in between? Right. A kind of inclusiveness, at least. Like, oh, there is that, and there's that. And you can sort of tune into this part and tune into that part, but not have the idea of excluding or like there's yes. only that. And I think there are warnings, too, of making a goal, being goal-focused mm-hmm. in some ways. In, in, say, you know, spiritual traditions focus on the transcendent side. That's the ultimate, yes. ultimate reality as, as what we should do. Yes. But then forgetting about what's happening now in just very ordinary, mundane ways can cause problems. Lots of problems. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is this idea of psychosis. Yeah. You know, and... and what it like when we leave this here and now in this body and go right to transcendence. Yeah. 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 So embodiment practice is very important. Yes. Besides, we do have bodies. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that, Gord. Because I think that, you know, for. I'm just going to speak for me personally. You know, there was a long time that I was quite nervous of this idea of transcendence, these transcendent practices and and what what that brings because of my own family history with schizophrenia and psychosis. My mother has schizophrenia. Mm. And so there's been a very like needing to really anchor in this body and yeah. this life and this earth and um, being very much drawn to that. Um, but recently, you know, moving back into the, these questions around um, this transcendence, this like, collective consciousness, you know, I've been <laughs> into Carl Jung lately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, what is that? Um, but there's always this kind of, I, I don't want to say warning, or maybe it's a wisdom, but that's like, okay, but he, but here right Mm -hmm. this earth this body this place Mm -hmm. um but i you know what you said like around just being in the denseness like that extreme place and and so i think in my mind what where i was kind of placing this practice at least in the small surface i've scratched right was that it was just like that (laughs) you know or like that's been the thing i'm like but i want to go i have questions about about this transcendence and and can they be answered within this framework? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah. yeah. And which framework? Like within the the study of of Buddhism, okay. and you know, I think about back to um, Dogen, mm-hmm. and is it the Mountains and Rivers Sutras? They're not sutras. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm not so familiar. With that Anyways, yeah, yeah. Do- I did some study with a teacher. Um, and then it just comes back to earth, you know, like this, mm. this nature and, and these, the transcendence that can happen like in a moment is, is what's coming to me now as you're speaking. It's like this idea that we need to, to go, you know, like transcend from here to get connected to like spirituality or, or, um, mm-hmm. spirit is mm-hmm. this idea that like, that's not here now. Mm. 
Right. Yeah. So I'm just catching myself and, and that idea that like, that's not here now, but when you can get soft enough in a space with nature, it's something that is coming to me when you can get soft enough in a space and really like settle into your body and settle into the space that you're in, like there's something there, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's right in the here and now that's not Mm -hmm. like transcending from that moment. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It's, it's present. Yes. So thanks for provoking that, Mm -hmm. that realization. Yeah. Yeah. This phrase I'm appreciating also is the kind of eternal present, which to me is, it's inviting this sense of inclusivity Mm. of um, our spaciousness. It's like all things are actually accessed through present. And, you know, there's so much talk about art. You know, we are alive right now. That's actually what's happening. We're not alive in the future or past. Like, we can actually observe this life is here yes. and now and this sense of you know eternal is an, is an interesting word but it gives me a, a sense of drawing in that it you know the spacious here and now it's not where that thing is not in the future or somewhere else it, mm-hmm. it's accessed here the, the ongoing here yes and now the internal presence that's beautiful yeah Thank you for that. (laughs) So you were speaking a few minutes ago about this idea of like an embodied practice. Mm -hmm. And then you also talked about like meditation and mindfulness. And I'm not sure that they're separate, but um, I think, you know, now I think in Western society, mindfulness and meditation have, have become quite popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's an idea that meditation is really hard mm. or that's people's experience. Right. right. And there's a, there's this idea that, you know, if I meditate, I like you can be good at meditating, right? So like I can't meditate because my mind's busy, mm-hmm. or I can't do yoga because mm-hmm. my mind's busy. I'm sure you, like yeah. I can't stop thinking. Yeah. Um, and you know I have something that I often say to that, which is like, but you know that's not the point of meditation. Like you don't show up to meditation with a blank mind. Yeah. But I'm curious what you have to say to that. Um, both the like Westernization of of meditation. And this idea that, like, what meditation looks like or this idea of what meditation is supposed to look like that people come mm-hmm. and have their presumptions about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, powerful questions. That really is an ongoing question. Yeah. Um, yeah, so much, you know maybe comes back to patience as well mm. interestingly and um you know the gradual training is is another phrase that came up so much as i was in the monasteries and um those are also words from the the buddha the gradual training 
and the intention of what he was offering as, you know, so-called meditation techniques or bhavana, sort of cultivation, I think is is a, a nice translation used, bhavana. Um, these are medicine medicines, mm. according to your illness, and and so this is why there isn't a one size fits all teaching of technique. Let's say there's a kind of spectrum of what to do practically according to what you're experiencing or what your um, agitation is or need. Yeah, so that's why there's you know different ways to meditate or cultivate. And so we need to take it where we're at. So, you know, with the embodiment, you know, sometimes if someone's life is busy or chaotic and you sit down for that kind of meditation, which is sitting and still, mm-hmm. it just doesn't quite match up because yeah. you drive yourself crazy with all the thinking because that's what your habit is that's been built through your activities or circumstances, conditions of life. And so a more appropriate thing in a, a gradual training or a gradual practice is more movement. So then, you know, a certain quality of steadying movement can start to tune down the frequency, calm the body and the mind and shift the chemicals that are and hormones that are causing so much interactivity. Yes. Um, so it's really, you know, this cultivation, it's, it's a wider thing. It's like you don't just sit to meditate. It's like, well, okay, so what are your preparations in your lifestyle to lead you to a certain kind of meditation practice? And yoga or qigong are so great because they can catch a lot more people who have a faster pace. Yes. And plus it brings amazing health benefits and increased energy. And you teach both of those as well, yes? I, I'm teaching Qigong. Okay. And I have taught yoga, but not so much. Okay. It's been more of a, a personal practice. Um, but yeah, I can see myself teaching it again at some point. Yes. I've, I really love the way that you've um, sh- like experienced shared that this idea of cultivation and that that, like those practices is like you know i can um an embodied practice that people can show up to and that you know because i think people have this idea that meditation like so the seated meditation let's say just to be clear like seated mindfulness of breathing meditation or like very kind of more yeah that that is that is what needs to happen and then so many people try to show up there like you said and there's like so much happening in the mind and um, so many thoughts and it can be quite discouraging and even in the body let's just say like the inability to like truly like sit Mm -hmm. still and then there's like the the pain that can show up and the discomfort in the body that becomes very evident when you're sitting still and and then the thoughts come up and that can be really um, hard for people you know in certain nervous system states and certain states um, habits of thinking, you know, it can be like some might even say like not a medicine. 
Yeah. 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 Um, Re-traumatizing for some, you know. It could be counterproductive. Absolutely. Whereas like yoga or even mindful walking practice, Mm. uh, mindful meditation in a walking practice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's often a, a great practice to begin with is walking meditation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's so many different ways to do it. But one of the natural things that people do anyways, sometimes they're pacing back and forth. Yes. And that just seems to be a natural calming mechanism that comes with our human nature. Yes. And so, f- f- you know, the Thai forest tradition and so many other traditions have this walking path for meditation, walking meditation. And it's back and forth about 20 paces each direction so that you're also not going somewhere. It's not taking a walk in the woods where there might be a destination. You get somewhere. Right. There's walking back and forth. There's obviously nowhere to get to. You're just there walking (laughs) back and forth. So that has an interesting shift. Yes. You can let go of that destination energy and and then just with the repetition of that you know it's quite boring let's say yes as as just walking back and forth but there's an invitation there to again cultivate that inner awareness that has endless detail and interest to it you know how's this what are the qualities of this foot when it touches the earth oh there's earth Oh, what, you know, earth energy, there's grounding available there as each, with each step. And, you know, we can bring certain interest to it as well. Like, I think Thich Nhat Hanh is where I heard this one, which I find beautiful. We kiss the earth with each step. Yes. So you kind of, you can feel that extra connection and extra affectionate way of stepping lightly yes carefully which encourages mindfulness um and it just calms the mind with repetition of simple things so that is a great way of starting to notice and learn and train quieting yes with big body movements like walking and then that can lead to sitting you know at some point you notice Oh, there's there isn't many thoughts going on and just sit down at the end of the walking path and just let it be that way. So there's ways of you know this gradual training. Start with what actually is helpful, what is the medicine for your ailment. Even that day or that part of the day it might be different. Yes. Mm. There's so much freedom in that, you know, all of a sudden it's like this this opening for this practice to like really meet you where you're at versus mm-hmm. this like rigid, mm-hmm. you know, I need to sit every day for 20 minutes mm-hmm. and and do this like mindfulness practice that looks like this. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Thanks, Cord. I am, um, as a counselor, I've done a lot of studies around like the nervous system. So looking at, you know, the state of our physiology and how that impacts the state of our mind Um, from a more, let's say, scientific perspective. I say that with quotations Mm because it's like an organization of knowledge. But um, uh, 
you know, there's a type of therapy that I do called EMDR therapy. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of it before? Heard of it, yeah. Yeah. And so it's this um, therapy that works with the bilateral stimulation of left and right brain, right? And so it's taking traumatic material and then um, stimulating your brain through eye movements or tapping left, right. But the founder of this or the person who kind of discovered this type of therapy, Francine Chappelle, Piro, she found it through walking mm. and you'd said like that there's a natural calming that happens with walking and that's really what EMDR is like s- stimulating the same thing this like left right left right and there's the nervous system regulation that happens with that mm-hmm. that movement right. meaning that there's a calming of the body and the mind um, and that nature as soon as we get in nature, there's a regulation that happens with our bodies, right? So it's it's like there's this beautiful symbiosis that happens for us when we when we come outside and and just simply being outside. There's a there's a change in state. The most people can acknowledge that, mm-hmm. even if they don't have a nature practice, you know, yeah. a practice of getting in nature. Um, and so when I think about walking meditation outside, I just think like that is like sounds amazing <laughs> you know like that that for me it's like when I work with clients that are really struggling with say anxiety or have um a lot of uh, trauma coming up or memories that are really disturbing to them or experiences um that is where I kind of go that's like one of the first suggestions that I make with people is like get outside move your body in a in a walking way with no podcast no music right. you know um, but mostly because that's what I've found for me that has worked and has, you know, for a long time. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to share that, that that is, and that so many people like that is accessible and that the impact, the impact of that on, um, the ability to cope. Right. And so when we talk about doing these things, these embodied practice or these meditations or this gradual training, is, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. The, the, yeah. So, I, and of course here I'm going into like, for what? Mm-hmm. But, but what is it training for? You know, I, I mean, I know because I do it and I feel better when I do it. But how would you conceptualize that? Or how would you describe like what it's for? Patience? Is that really it's the cultivation of patience? Mm. I mean, presence is a word that comes mm. up. Um, which is powerful, powerful thing, you know, even like as a counselor, therapist, when you offer your presence to someone, just that has a, an effect. Yes. You're just hearing someone, just being with them. So that grows with cultivation practices. I mean, present, you know, habituating the, Awareness to move in the present, basically as presence. So it becomes something available. And of course, presence, you know, this word of like, you give gifts. I was just thinking that. It's like all mixed up in there. Yeah, (laughs) but how how beautiful is that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm giving you presence. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's very... Um, Yeah, and of course there's qualities that come with presence, you know, these intangible 
qualities of energetic or vibratory frequencies yes uh, that can be tuned to a certain type of presence so certainly that's strongly developed with meditation and especially if you take it where you're at so you're not agitating yourself with it yes um Um, patience for sure patience with your own process right because like, you're observing agitations or emotions arising and passing as part of a practice then patience does grow and compassion grows for oneself um, openness to just seeing the process as it is seeing the unfolding as it is yeah um and inject and injecting or cultivating a inner culture of compassion yeah. then and then that moves out to others so i think that's a strong effect and talked about so much especially in the tibetan tradition dalai lama so much about yes. compassion um and and spaciousness which many traditions talk about and work with spaciousness which becomes a more inclusive mode of being mm -hmm. there's a I think inward sense to it as well there's a kind of restful quality that comes with spaciousness feeling spacious and like really heart opening yes there's more space for patience and presence with others and for oneself and for the world and for the challenges of embodied life while at the same time there's a link to this quality this you know so-called transcendent quality there's this incredible spaciousness there yes you know emptiness is a word used which is you know i don't know if that's a good word <laughs> i think it's different yeah. for different people but uh, spaciousness it's kind of it becomes more inclusive and I think ultimately it leads to this um, everything belongs. Yes. And a, re a real invitation of inclusion and acceptance and embracing. As you're speaking, Gord, a word that's, that's coming up when I think about, or when, when I'm hearing you speak about the spaciousness and, and some of the, the things that we train for, we, we um, acquire through mindfulness practice or meditation practice embodied or seated um, is like a connection it's connection right because connection to that what is in our surroundings right which is present like in presence comes a connection mm -hmm. to the people you're with to your life the life that is living around you and I, I do think that a lot of suffering or pain happens when we can't make that connection because there's so much happening in our minds. Mm -hmm. You know, there's such a habit of thinking or there's, you know, traumatic events that have happened like in our bodies and in our lives that have really preoccupied mm -hmm. our thinking yeah. and there's not a lot of space and then yeah. there's not a lot of connection to ourselves, to our to our own experience, but also like our, our embodied experience, not like we have a connection to our thoughts, mm -hmm. but you know, there's like, like what it means to be in this body right here, that, that that gets kind of really disconnected. And then this like 
relational presence, this relational being, being able to be in space with others and then being able to be in space. Yeah, so I just think that that when we're present, that that's when that can really come. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, the, and it's, it becomes quite a remedy for this epidemic of separateness. Yes. Which it really is such a core issue and maybe core perception. Uh, I don't know if it's like more so in modern times where we have so much personal power and individuality, there can be such a strong sense of separateness, which then so easily leads to kind of illness of being. Mm. Um, Yeah. So that, yeah, so that, and then you talked about um, not having much inner space you know, things, thoughts take up space. And, you know, can be disconnected from one's sense of self and presence as well. Which is, you know, part of, part of the meditative practice is to work with that. The thoughts are shooting to future and past a lot or spinning on issues you know, ruminating on stuff and going in a negative direction. Um, There's just a lot to work with there. And, you know, again, this word conditioned habits can be there as um, why why we would focus on this gradual thing, like not just try to ram our practice into a, a certain place if if it's not appropriate, you know, for such fullness of thoughts and mind, hmm. when you, you know, you find this necessity of being a functional person in certain ways for your family or work, there's a lot to think about yeah. or do and keep track of and plan for. So, yeah, so the cultivation of spaciousness could be a certain remedy for that, but you know, without forcing. Yes. And just that non-forcing part is another thing I remember from such a young age, discovering Taoist teachings in this Wu way is, is the way of non-forcing or non-doing is, is one of the translations. Mm-hmm. But non-forcing is a bit more succinct, I think, than non-doing. It's, not, it's different than not doing. Yes. So, so this non-forcing, like, well, okay, if this, you know, certain sitting meditation is not working because of life conditions, well, do a different one that is actually the medicine for your state that starts to open up a sense of space or nurture. Yes. Hmm. Non-forcing. That, that feels very different than non-doing. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you start, like, oh, I'm hearing that, you, you know, there was a, a draw to this, you had, yeah, there was a draw to this, like, inner spaciousness, a spaciousness for you mm-hmm. uh, from a young age. When did you start studying it more formally? There was a, 
there was a, a real shift when I was 17. And certain things happened where where I was became where I became inclined to um, start taking responsibility for my choices and inner life. Mm-hmm. So I remember this, you know, just a real shift at that age, and I started studying and being um, more careful with my own energy. And, you know, some of it started with with reading a, a book on yoga and meditation, so a physical asana practice, and and then breathing, pranayama, and then meditation as part of it. Mm-hmm. And it was just so intriguing to me and just, you know, starting to follow some of the practices and listening to guided meditations. So that, you know, that was a real point of change of taking my life on for myself Mm. self-directing in a much different way yes yeah I just kept going from there I came across yoga at 17 as well well. and it was also the the catalyst for for much of my self-inquiry we'll say in in this so um, I often say that yoga seems to be a gateway for Many people. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and has such a, a wide scope of, of how to engage with it. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is so appealing. Yeah. Yeah. I am. Um, I started to. Okay, actually, I have a question. Mm. So we haven't touched much on. I mean, I just feel like I could talk to you for hours, but mm. um, you have a music practice. Right. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious, like where, you know, where does art fit in? You know, when you think about art and this thing that happens when you write songs. And I mean, I'm speaking from my own experience Mm. of, you know, like there's something that happens, Mm -hmm. that creative force or Mm. that creative connection or, you know, I, I, that's the one place where I feel like. Maybe not the one place, but for me, that's like a place where I can easily see this like non-self that happens Mm. is when there's a a creative experience that's happening through me. Right. Right. Like that's the one place where like I can go back to and I'm like, oh yeah, but the, the like that, I don't feel like there's a sense of self when say I'm writing a song. Yeah. Or when I'm writing poetry, or, um, yeah. So I'm curious what you think about that, and if you have a similar experience when you write. I assume you write music. Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, music really has been a, a big part of my life, and um, my parents put me in violin lessons when I was six. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years of violin. Uh, Suzuki school cool and uh, and then came across a, a teacher which was too strict and mean and it turned me off by then. yes <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so then it shifted over to piano okay you know my parents were very interested in well and and just noticing my musical interest um, so piano lessons which 
you know, what's amazing, I'm so glad about that because it's such a musical education. The piano is yes. an incredible instrument. And that really gave me a strong foundation for understanding and hearing music and um, envisioning music. But again, it was lessons, you know, it was like, oh, I don't know, like, I have to practice, yeah. you know, it was 30 it's minutes a day and yes. this kind of formal, almost academic way of doing it, mm-hmm. um, which I think was, you know, maybe six or seven years, so it's significant. Um, and um, and allowed me to open to finding music in other ways yes. quite easily. You know, I just, I knew what chords were, I knew what they sounded like, melodies and scales and all that. So that was kind of taken care of. Yes. And I could open into a more fluid place with it. Yes. And so one of the, the next things that happened when I was 18 was um, a lifelong family friend was into drums, drum set. And so I was in the keyboard and some a friend lent me their synthesizer. So portable thing. And so so my, my friend said, oh yeah, you know, let's jam. You know, <laughs> let, we should make a band. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, great, sounds good. And so we, just the two of us, played together and figured out some things and played some surf songs and surf music and... And then, so we formed a band. Two other people joined us and at that time in high school. I also, I, I also played alto saxophone in junior high band, so I had that kind of big band um, jazz music experience as well from junior high. And, but this band experience, you know, we were into modern sounds, modern music. And we, over a period of maybe... I don't know, five years of pretty constant playing, we became a improvising trio. <laughs> Electric guitar, drum set, keyboard, and I ended up playing the bass parts on the keyboard mm-hmm. and, and then chording and melodies with my right hand. And so this became an extraordinary thing. We were all attending university together and discovered ethnomusicology and Indian classical music, which then, boom, it's tying into meditation and Mm -hmm. spiritual practice and mentorship style. Um, The whole India thing, you know, and plus the yoga, it was kind of this orbit of India, yoga and music was showing up. And so this improvising style that we were into came from that idea, from, from seeing classical Indian music just you know, improvising over forms and and scales and uh, thinking of, okay, this is a a scale that relates to the sunrise or, you know, certain ragas. There's a form uh, with a theme to it. And so we started going there with our improvised music and we would play for often two hours without stopping, fully improvised with this idea, oh, there's meditation tied in with it. Yes. So that, you know, that was just an amazing shift from, you know, the formalized classical music or song forms Mm -hmm. to this open uh, realm of sound. 
and with a synthesizer, so many sounds are available. Yeah. It's just like this total playground. <laughs> so that was very formative to me that in having music that early in my first band being tied to a spiritual practice of meditation and sound as meditation, music mm -hmm. as meditation, the process of music making as a meditation practice. And um, and just one second, Gord, as a meditation practice, meaning like happening like in the moment, is that what you mean? Or was like that you were creating things in that state of spaciousness and presence, that's what made it more meditative, music as meditation? Yeah, in, in the shift of awareness that happens during the making of the sound. Yes. That I use this gesture, it kind of, this um, waking state kind of steps back a bit. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, you, the normal conscious awareness steps back a bit and this emergence is happening. And what I'm playing is not necessarily what I thought of playing. Yes. The body or the, you know, the system is just starting to do things. And, um, you know, and, and part of that, you know, one day there was, I was playing and had a, a what you probably call a mystical experience. We were playing in this little basement room, this kind of cellar type place. And then I, I, was walk, I was walking outside on the sidewalk and went around and this block and back through the alley and heard sounds in, in the house. And it was, you know, the house we were in. And I walked into the backyard and looked into the window of the basement. I'm like, oh, there I am playing and the, here, this is our band playing, and I'm sitting there outside of the house looking. And then whoosh, you know, sucked back into my body, and there I was playing. And I'm like, what? I was just outside and walked around the neighborhood, but I'm still playing. So this kind of out-of-body experience happened. Yeah. Like, holy, that was... You know, somehow the shift, whatever shift that was, or how deep I got in that meditation quality of Playing the music produced qu quite a mystical experience. Like a visualization or... Yeah, I mean... Who knows? Whatever that was, Whatever you know? that was, like, huh. And then we would actually, you know, the three of us would go out into forests or take trips and meditate okay. as well and not just make music. So it was all wrapped into a spiritual path. What a gift. Yeah. To be able to create music with people mm -hmm. um, sharing that same yeah. openness, mm -hmm. interest. Yeah, it was incredible. Wow. It was kind of real Three Musketeers situation. And <laughs> we just did that for years together. Wow. And some people would come and listen to us play and, and get into their own meditative state because it was just this long form evolution of sound mm -hmm. for an hour or two hours. So that, you know, that really set up a certain context for my engagement with music or the art of sound and, and practice of meditation or spiritual practice or tuning into these other states of being. Yeah. And I would say as far as, you know, songwriting, when that was happening more, happening more as song forms and, and words... 
that's what I tune into as well. And sometimes I call it the muse these mm-hmm. days. Yes. I just get quiet and then listen for it. Listen for what is there. You know, what is sort of hovering around that will start to come through. So this deep listening to the muse, like whatever that is. Right. You know, so it's not, a lot of times I'm not writing the song, kind of maybe you were describing it like that a bit. Yes. There's something coming through and I'm trying to be a, a translator. and A, a vessel. Yeah, a vessel and, and listen for it. Mm-hmm. Let it be done through me. Yes, that um, this muse, you know, this is this is the place I've been really, um, I've I've have a keen interest. Hence the Carl Jung, <laughs> you yeah. know, the the like, what is this this muse, this thing that you're tuning into? And you know, from our conversation today, I'm starting to ask myself, why do I need to know what it is? Mm-hmm. You know, like, what's the the um, like, do I need to know what it is? Or can I just appreciate the, the relationship that happens with it? Right. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> versus, uh, versus like the, the um, pursuit of no, like knowledge of knowing. Mm. And I'm in a course right now out of a university in California and it's, it's called the archetype of the artist. Okay. And it's amazing. It's been such a, I'm only into my third week and it's with mm-hmm. artists from all over North America and, um, you know, really studying this idea of like the muse and the soul okay. and art mm-hmm. and the archetype of the artists or how artists um, have kind of shown up throughout history. And this idea that, you know, we, that like the artist, the archetype or the yeah, the archetype of the artist is also the archetype of the healer. Like that, that this and the shaman, like they're like art is the healing. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like the artist is actually um, a, when someone is an artist, they show up in, in kind of all these different places. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like what happens when you uh, become more receptive to the muse or or the art if you live a life that is open to that mm-hmm. um, experience and, and actually allow that that energy or that for creative force or you know that relationship with creativity with like when you like heed that call like you know so the, some people talk about that being like it really can be quite um, difficult you know, if they get a bit tormented by this, like, need to to create. Anyways, mm. I'm just sharing some of the things that um, are coming up and, and some of the learning that I'm having right now and other people's experience with creativity. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I don't know that there needs to be a knowing as to what it is, like who this, what this muse is or mm-hmm. who's, like who or what is like bringing that information in is mm-hmm. it really beneficial if, if the process is the part that's the most enjoyable or the most mm. important yeah. yeah I love this um, phrasing that 
comes through um, Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry mm-hmm. a number of times where it's things ripen. It's, uh, yeah, things ripen. So like in that case, like whether we know what a thing is or don't know what it is, it's, it's okay and, and maybe it will ripen into some clarity or a name for it or a category. But the kind of allow allowance of things to ripen and they you know, will mm-hmm. have their own time frame of ripening and we can't make it go faster <laughs> a lot of the time or, mm. or we don't want to pick it too soon or something like yes. that, you know? Yes. The most enjoyable or the most mm. important. Yeah. Yeah. I love this um, phrasing that comes through um, Rainer Maria Rilke's poetry mm. a number of times where it's things ripen. It's, uh, yeah, things ripen. So like in that case, like whether we know what a thing is or don't know what it is, it's, it's okay. And, and maybe it will ripen into some clarity or a name for it or a category. But the kind of allow allowance of things to ripen and they you know, will mm-hmm. have their own time frame of ripening and we can't make it go faster <laughs> a lot of the time or, mm. or we don't want to pick it too soon or something like yes. that, you know? Yes. Well, thank you for uh, listening to that whole conversation and to be honest, it was cut short because... Um, something happened with the recording so there was a bit more but we're gonna leave it at that and um trust that we got all of us got everything we needed out of that conversation um if you'd like to stay connected with gord you can find him on his patreon site which i'll link in the notes and he's got some music out he's got an album called love uprising um and there'll be links in the show notes for that as well And, and gord has also given some recommended readings after um, our conversation today so all of that all those goodies are going to be in the show notes so um yeah let us know what you thought of this conversation like subscribe share the episodes um and if you want the video version you can uh, check out our youtube channel thank you for your support and i hope you have a lovely rest of your day